What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I was knocked to the ground, and, and when I came to, my handbag with my purse and my credit cards had all gone. Uh. I've just come from the hospital. I need to pay my gas bill, and I've got to buy a present for my grandson. I just don't know what to do. Uh, we better get you some new ones, haven't we? Computer says no. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that clip was part of a running joke in Little Britain, the cult BBC comedy of the 1990s. And it was doing the rounds a few days ago in a mini Twitter storm over an interview I did with the British finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. In it, he'd explained why he had to wait until next year to raise UK welfare payments in line with rocketing inflation, rather than maybe giving families the help right now. It wasn't because it was too expensive. It needn't cost anything at all. It was that the system wouldn't let him. Computer says no. Well, you can hear his answer to that and my other questions in a minute. Also, how the mood cooled noticeably when I asked him about recent revelations that his wife had been using a loophole in UK tax law which enabled her to avoid millions of pounds in UK tax on her foreign earnings. After the Chancellor, we'll be heading halfway around the world to hear from the United Nations Commissioner of Human Rights, the former President of Chile, Dr Michelle Bachelet. I've been talking to her at the New Economy Gateway event in Panama about Russian war crimes, American abortion rights and whether the new President of Chile can succeed where she didn't. Worth sticking around for. But first, here's the Chancellor. And if you want to picture the scene, the two of us were sitting in a very swanky new shared workspace in the English city of Stoke-on-Trent, previously the home of English pottery, now best known as the headquarters of the betting company, Bet365. Chancellor, thanks very much uh, for doing this. Uh, we've had uh, the GDP news today. There's obviously a lot of factors, global factors, creating uncertainty for the economy, but we have also created some of our own in the UK. And the debate about the Northern Ireland Protocol is obviously casting, casting a shadow. Have you analysed at the Treasury what the economic implications of tearing up the protocol will be? First of all, on the protocol... I think the government's position is that as it's currently operating, it poses enormous challenges to the stability of the situation in Northern Ireland. You can see it's become a barrier to re-establishing power sharing in Northern Ireland, doesn't have cross-community consent. And that's a very serious situation that needs resolving. You know, our preference is, is to have and always has been to have a negotiated settlement with our European friends and partners. And no decision has been taken about you know what the future direction might be 
With regard to your second question, look, of course, that's that's my job, you know, to provide the prime minister and the government with analysis on policy regarding the economy. You'd expect me to do that on everything, and, and of course we do, and we're constantly monitoring everything that's going on and and analysing that as we go. But, but we, we understand that you could get legislation next week uh, to make it possible to tear up the protocol, and that seems to be what the foreign secretary is supporting. Are you are you lobbying hard on behalf of the economy to prevent that? I think it's important people know that no decision has been taken. Our preference has always been to have a negotiated settlement. And you said that it's the, the Treasury's job to analyse these things. When the protocol was signed, it was very clear that these checks were going to happen, that there would be this kind of imp- impediment uh, to trade. So that's something that's, that's no surprise at all. I think when it comes to the protocol, we have to recognise that there's a, there's a unique situation in Northern Ireland. And everyone acknowledged that at the time. And it required a, a degree of flexibility and a constructive attitude on all sides to recognise the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland to come up with a solution that would work. And I'm hopeful that continued dialogue and negotiation can resolve the situation and result in a negotiated outcome. But just when you're weighing up the, the impact on the economy as a Chancellor, it seems clear that you would be pushing for the continuation of the protocol rather than throwing all of our trade relationship into uncertainty. Well, it's, it's important to me, as it is important to the government, that we also protect the Good Friday Agreement, that, that we resume power sharing in Northern Ireland, that we make sure that Northern Ireland's place in the Union, in the United Kingdom, is secure. And it's clear that the protocol, as it's currently operating, is is causing harm on all those things. And that's why we, you know, we, we remain committed to trying to find resolution on that. It's a serious situation. And that's something that across government we all feel. One of the reasons why a big trade war with Europe would be the worst possible timing is the cost of living crisis. Our economists estimate that the cost of living squeeze altogether is going to cost the average family well over £2,100 this year. Um, you've got as a result, real disposable income falling by 4%. We're also expecting to see the economy shrink in the second and fourth quarter. We've already saw today it shrank, started to shrink um, in March. I mean, you, do you look back now and wish that you had got more ahead of this crisis in the spring statement rather than yet again having to rush out some emergency medicine under pressure from, from the rest of the government? Uh, no, I think it's important that the policy remains responsive to the situation that we're seeing. And in the spring and in February, we had a sense of what was happening. In particular, we had clarity on energy prices because the price cap was increased in April uh, by about £700. And we announced in advance of that the support that was going to accompany that increase. And it's worth about £350 for a typical household. It's about half the increase. And then on top of but that... But overall, I've just said it's 2000 So that yeah. doesn't feel responsive. Well, well, that's just one aspect of, of what we're doing. And if you, if you look what's happening in a few weeks' time, for example, there's a very significant tax cut coming in for 30 million people in work that's worth oh, six so billion quite pounds. Tax rise. Well, it means that most people in work, the vast majority, 70% of them will see a net tax cut, in fact, it's worth 330 pounds. The combination of our fuel duty freeze and fuel duty tax cut, the largest ever cut to fuel duty, that's worth another £100 for a typical family. The national living wage has just gone up a few weeks ago. Again, that's worth about £1,000 a year to someone working full-time on the national living wage. So you, you put all these things together, there's quite a lot of support in place. But I've always said I'd stand ready to do more as the situation evolves, uh, particularly with energy prices, where the price cap will, will most likely go up again in, in the autumn. And I'm focused now on, I'm out and about across the country, listening to people, 
hearing what's on their mind, what they're worried about, to make sure that we can get our policy right. Uh, and that's the thing that I'm focused on now doing. You've mentioned a lot of the measures actually would help working families, but we ha- there's a big hit for anyone who's reliant on, on state benefits. And that's uh, a very simple thing that could have been done that actually would have been cost neutral would have been to spread the up rating across two years. So instead of getting a well below inflation increase in benefits this year and what will probably be a well above inflation increase next year, you could have spread it over two years. And I know there, were, there may have been some technical problems with that, but have you worked out how to do that yet? Because it obviously could make a well, big actually, difference. Actually, there are quite, I mean, the technical problems that sounds like a, uh, an excuse, but the, the operation of our welfare system is actually technically complicated and it's not necessarily possible to do that for everybody. Uh, and actually many of the systems are built in a way that that can only be done once a year and the decision was taken quite quite a while ago before But you managed to put the furlough, realized. you designed the furlough scheme for most of the world of the yes, UK popular we, working we, we, force we for did. a few weeks. Uh, the, the welfare system works in a, in a very different way and we're constrained somewhat by the operation of the welfare system so it can't be done for everybody in that way but, but we are still supporting people. I recognise there's always going to be families in a particular circumstance that it's you know, I can't particularly forecast sitting at a desk in, in the Treasury. And that's why we've given councils a, before and now up to a billion pounds of discretionary funding, because the local councils are best placed to know those very vulnerable families who, for whatever reason, aren't quite getting the help they need. So those councils now have the funding that they can provide direct support to those families a little bit extra as well. And you talked about councils. We've done a very careful look uh, at what's happened on the levelling up agenda across the country since 2019, everything that we can get on the very latest, because obviously most of the time you have got rather old data, but the things that go right up mostly to the spring of this year, the gap between London and South East and everywhere else is growing on every measure except life expectancy and the number of people on benefits. And that's only because London has leveled down. Those things have got worse in London. Here, Salaries on average, monthly salaries have fallen behind the London and South East by another £300. I mean, it's an impossible task that you've been landed with this levelling up agenda. And you, you're not, it doesn't feel like the government's really putting the money and the effort in to make a difference on any of these measures. So I haven't seen your report yet, so forgive me for not uh, having sight of exactly the figures. Um, they're slightly different to the figures that I'd looked at previously, where what you saw was a much stronger recovery in jobs and, and wages outside of London and the South East. So I'd be interested to, to have a look at your Very report. I think in general, look, the period that you're describing is obviously the period of the pandemic. And so it's, a, it's been a challenging time for, for the economy. Uh, but that said, we are very committed to, to levelling up. You know, what does it mean to me? It means making sure people, wherever they happen to grow up and live in the UK, feel that they've got fantastic opportunity ahead of them and that they also have enormous pride in the place where they get to call home. You know, we're sitting here in Stoke, which has received a huge amount of investment in the town here or the cities here or the collection of towns and also investment in the transport uh, infrastructure. And I've been here multiple times to visit local businesses in the community. And actually, there's an enormous sense of positivity and optimism here about what's happening. We're, we're Bloomberg, so we obviously we're very focused on the financial services, yes. on the city. You had a fantastic career in the city. You've also uh, been in high office for several years. It's very easy to lose track of how the rest of the world sees things. And I just, I have to ask you, it's been a few weeks since the story broke. Do you have a better understanding now of why even your supporters found it extraordinary that your family was organising its tax affairs to to limit UK tax? So look, my my wife's 
her own person. Uh, she's an independent businesswoman. She's made you a statement. She's, my wife is, I don't think people would find it extraordinary if she was my property. I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to dictate to my wife to tell her what to do. She's an independent business person and she's always followed all the rules. She's paid taxes in the UK on her UK earnings and international taxes on her international earnings, very much within the rules. But she recognised that you know, there was a call to go beyond the rules and she made that decision herself to pay both the UK and foreign taxes As on her Chancellor, you didn't think earnings. it was extraordinary. I just wonder whether you think, you often talk about being a good husband and being a good citizen. Do you think being a good citizen, a good husband, a good leader is only about sticking to the rules and doing what's legal? No, but I, I, I do think about part of being a good husband is, is not presuming to dictate to my wife what, what to do because she's an independent person and I support her decisions. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. And now to Panama and the New Economy Gateway. It's an event that's an offshoot of the Singapore New Economy Forum that Bloomberg holds every year in November. As I write this, I'm looking at a long line of container ships out my window, queuing to get into the Panama Canal. So, yes, it is a good place to talk about supply chains and the future of global trade. We've been doing that a lot in the last couple of days, but we've also been doing that a lot on this podcast. So I thought you might be more interested to hear my conversation with Dr. Michel Bachelet, Commissioner for Human Rights for the United Nations and President of Chile between 2006 and 2010. Since we were talking to an audience in Panama, we spend a lot of time on Latin America, but I started by asking her whether Vladimir Putin or members of the Russian military should now be tried for war crimes in Ukraine. Well, I have to say that we have had a mission there from 2014 that had been monitoring and reporting all kinds of situations and making a lot of reports to the Human Rights Council since 2014. And after the 24th of February, they're still there, working there, uh, uh, identifying and receiving a lot of information, allegations of violation of human rights, on, on how prisoners of war have been treated, uh, if there are allegations of uh, arbitrary killings or extrajudicial killings, uh, if there are any allegations on gender-based violence and rapes. And our job as uh, the Office of the High Commissioner is to, um, to get all that information, to verify it, to see which, what are facts that are real and which are not, because in this kind of situation, we need to ensure that the information we share with the world and, of course, with the media as well, are facts that are real. But it's not for us to say whether something is a war crime or not. There is a, a particular, uh, if I would say, methodology to identify if the allegations are a reality, and we do that. We are also asking to preserve evidence, because the only possibility of defining uh, war crimes is on a tribunal with evidence base, but let me say something. The war in Ukraine is not a war that can be seen only as a terrible, and it is, a violation of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. Uh, 
That is one terrible thing, and it has had so many casualties and grievances, etc. But I have to say, the war in Ukraine has provoked and will continue to provoke a three-dimensional crisis on food, energy, and finance as oil, fertilizers, and food prices are skyrocketing. And there will be serious effect in Latin America and in the Caribbean, already deeply affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Price increases particularly affect vulnerable populations. If we continue with high levels of inflation, with lack of enough food, with uh, people having not any support, uh, there will be a big social unrest. I'm certain about that. I mean, when when something happens in a country, but the leaders are trusted, that leader can speak to the country and say, look, we are facing this issue. We did not produce it, but we're having the consequences and we're going to deal with this and this and this and this manner. But if there's no trust in institutions, there's no trust in leadership, it could be much worse. Just briefly, to go back on, on Ukraine, I mean, obviously sitting in Latin America, it has its own experience of of being next to a very large neighbor and that neighbor involving itself in its affairs. Um, The U.S. has been very vociferous about calling for Russian officials to be prosecuted for war crimes, despite the fact that the U.S. has itself refused to join or be bound by the International Criminal Court. Do you you think that's tenable? Do you think that is a, a, a constructive contribution? Well, I believe that the definition of war crime is not political. It has to be judicial after a criminal investigation. And, uh, and, 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 and that's what we will stand for, and to have all the information needed to ensure that uh, there is due process, that there are uh, serious investigations, and that the, all the evidence is preserved. So we, that whoever, the mechanisms that have to decide, make those definitions, could have all the information that it is needed. If the U.S. is calling for it, and yet the U.S. is, by definition, not willing to have any of its own officials uh, or military members be tried on the same terms, that, that, that suggests it is political and that devalues the term, surely? Well, there's a lot of politics in all these issues, of course, of course. Uh, I, I would like that every country in the world is, uh, is a member of the ICC. Uh, and that's not the, the issue. And we have three of the P5 that are not ratifying the ICC and the Rome Statute. So there is an issue there. And even Ukraine has not ratified the Rome Institute. But, uh, but there are other ways anyway to uh, investigate, identify perpetrators, and hold them accountable. You talked about the risks that might come uh, and the problems that could be exacerbated by rising food and energy prices in this region. We have seen a surge in authoritarian tendencies. Nicaragua is the most recent example. Uh, when you look at the region, what are you, which countries are you most worried about and how, how, do you want to, how do you think we can start to redress that democratic deficit, build trust, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah, of course, we are being following. I mean, even before the, the, the war and before COVID, we have been following several countries in the region and looking at their human rights situation. As you may know, uh, these uh, countries are like, um, we have been working strongly on Venezuela uh, for, for a long time. And we have been uh, identifying there which are the issues, the challenges, the problems, 
uh, and, and, and also identifying which are the possibilities to, to improve uh, the protection and promotion of human rights. Uh, I mean, if Venezuela has a good economic growth, that is welcome. It is key, though, that this growth needs to be used to ensure people can have an adequate standard of living. And I continue to encourage the lifting of sectorial tensions to contribute to relieving the needs of the most vulnerable people in Venezuela. I do believe that individual sanctions can play an important role, but when you have sectorial sanctions, what it happens is that the people who are the most vulnerable ones are the ones who are affected because there are not enough money for supporting the health system, the social protection system, the education, and so on. On Nicaragua, yes, we have uh, many people have been arrested in the context of of the 2021 elections, and these are extremely concerning. Uh, we have been calling the authorities to release all those arbitrarily detained. Um, the government has continued to cancel the legal status of civil society organizations and universities, and we have also called authorities to restore those status because those organizations have been arbitrarily dissolved or sanctioned. And, and of course, there is a new law that concerns us a lot on NGO further restricting the functioning of civil society contrary to the country's human rights obligations. Uh, I think Nicaragua must remain in international agenda. Last March, the Human Rights Council adopted a resolution that allows my office to continue monitoring and reporting on the human rights situation in the country. And it has established a group of human rights experts with an accountability mandate in parallel to the mandate of my office. Um, we are also being concerned about El Salvador about the state of emergency, which led to more than 30,000 people being arrested and the subsequent amendment to criminal law and criminal procedural law. I mean, we recognize, I have to say, I, being, I haven't been in office myself. I understand that security and how you deal with delinquency is a very, very challenge, challenging issue. And I recognize the challenges posed by gang violence in El Salvador. But we have to do things not only, I mean, the intention can be good, but we have to do it in a way that you respect international human rights law. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. There's so many countries, I think we could spend 20 minutes yeah, on, on sorry, each yes. of those and people <laughs> will be fascinated to hear what you think. But let me just come back on Venezuela because many people were surprised to see you recommend the lifting of sanctions uh, last year against uh, Venezuela, despite there um, not having been a significant improvement in the situation. Uh, and uh, I noticed that uh, there have been 93 incidents that your office has seen related to restrictions on Venezuela's civic and democratic space just since last autumn. Um, and yet you've said again that you are in favor of lifting sanctions. Is that because you don't think they are the right tool for Venezuela? And, and do we use them too much in other places? Well, as I mentioned before, Stephanie, we differentiate individual sanctions, sanctions to individual people who you could think are responsible for violation of human rights or and they need to be held accountable from sectorial sanctions. 
we are against sectorial sanctions, not only in Venezuela, in ev everywhere. Because what happens is the sectorial uh, uh, sanctions usually hurt the poorest. But I have to tell you, when I visited uh, uh, Venezuela in 2019, I spoke to people who are not uh, pro-government, uh, mothers and doctors of hospitals or children's hospitals who were affected by the sanctions. Even though some sanctions are supposed not to include medicine, medical supplies, there is a lot of overcompliance. Banks do not want to risk anything. So what happened, for example, I was speaking to some, some doctors. They have these children who needed a kidney transplant and there was no possibility to do it in the country. So they were sending these children, children to Italy or Argentina. But the banks won't send the money to those places, so they won't accept it. And many children died because of that. So that's what I mean. I mean, when you are doing some sanction, you need to think exactly who you are impacting. And usually, you don't impact the powerful. You impact the, the more vulnerable people. The dynamic that you mentioned is very visible in Afghanistan. Briefly, on the political prospects for Venezuela. What are you hoping will be the political solution? Do you think you can have a free and fair presidential election in 2024? Well, I am a chronic, uh, chronic optimistic, if I may say, <laughs> because otherwise I will have to give up. Huh? Uh, I always uh, use <laughs> these uh, words of uh, Desmond Tutu, who used to say, I'm a prisoner of hope. And uh, so I hope that parties will sit together understanding that they need to think on Venezuela as a whole and which could be the best political dialogue to ensure that in 2024 they are fair, transparent, and very participative uh, elections. And, 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 and I, I hope this will be resumed soon you mentioned the challenges of office. You're conscious in your uh, criticisms that how challenging it is to be on the other side. We have seen uh, new governments come in on a wave of optimism in uh, Peru, Ecuador, Honduras, and certainly your own native country, Chile, uh, and very rapidly lose support. If you look at the, the new president of of Chile, uh, Gabriel Boric, he seems to have lost support very quickly. And so as someone who's been in very much in that situation, what's your advice to him? How can he come through on, on th that optimism that brought him to power? Well, I mean, first of all, and I spoke to him that when I was in Chile in summer, I told him there has been so huge expectation on you, our government, from enormous amount of people. And I have to tell you, Mr. President, I told him, big expectations can never be met. Because usually there are unrealistic expectations because people want changes, but in a month, in two months. No? But many of the more transformational changes will take a bit longer. They had to deal with issues that are very challenging for any government. COVID-19, still COVID-19 pandemic, the economy with the COVID-19 and the consequences of COVID on the economy and the employment, uh, and now the consequences of higher levels of inflation due to the war. So it clearly, I think for any leader, this is a very challenging moment. My only recommendation could be always speak openly to the people to explain the challenges and explain what you're going to do to address these challenges. But to, on the other hand, to, to explain that there are no magical solutions. 
The other thing that has happened, I guess, is this all this process of a new Chilean constitution that's been going on created also a lot of expectations. It was good because the country through that has channeled the social outburst of 2019 in a democratic and participatory process, but also in something very interesting because it's completely paritarian. The 154 members of the uh, Constitutional Assembly are 50-50 women and men, and that is really new, and it means that a lot of processes have included the gender, perspective, and so on. But of course, it has taken time, uh, and people want solutions now, want changes now. And it will be until the 4th of September when there will be the referendum where this new constitution can be approved or not by the people. So I think they're leaving a lot of challenges. Do you think it, do you think it will be approved? Do you think it will be approved? Uh, I hope it will be approved. I think it should be approved. I think one of the challenges that they have is to be able to communicate better to the people so people can understand what is it about, because some people are more concerned, of course, of working, having food, you know, the, 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 the normal concerns of somebody, and not being able to get in touch in detail with these issues. But I think it's a great opportunity, and I hope it's approved. So we're going to run out of time, but I had to ask you one question, uh, especially given, given your record in, in speaking up for, for women's rights. We've had big demonstrations in the U.S. Uh, this weekend over the potential for Supreme Court overturning uh, abortion rights in, in, in many states in the U.S., when you look at the continent, some would say the biggest or one of the larger democratic, democratic deficits that's opening up is potentially in the U.S., with the Constitution there becoming quite a, a polarizing force. Um, do you think the U.S. should perhaps take a leaf out of Chile's book and have a, have a constitutional convention, have some kind of way to address this deficit? Well, let me tell you first that the leaked document from the U.S. Supreme Court does not constitute a final decision from the court. Uh, and, and, and I think that possible decisions taken at the national level in the U.S. to revert more than five decades of protection of sexual reproductive health and rights through Roe and Wade are very concerning. And we're really concerned at that because we believe it could be a massive setback for human, women's rights, contrary to the international human rights standards. Millions of women in the U.S. could be affected by the decision, especially those with low income and belonging to racial and ethnic minorities, because evidence shows that highly restrictive laws have a disproportional impact on marginalized groups of women, in particular women living in poverty. Uh, globally, unsafe abortion is a leading cause of maternal death, and evidence has shown that restrictive abortion laws do not reduce incidence of abortion, but drive it underground, making it more likely to be unsafe. Do the U.S. needs a constitutional uh, process? Well, I'm not sure there is appetite there for that. And I suppose are uh, the American citizens the one who needs to answer that. Because I know constitution can open many other issues that maybe they don't want to open right now in the discussion. But I hope in this issue that women's, uh, women's rights can be respected. Because we do believe that uh, even, um, I mean, everybody can have options choices and what states need to ensure is that women have those options. What state cannot do is to impose a certain perspective, but needs to ensure that all women, according to their own beliefs, religion, or decisions on their own autonomy, on their bodies and so on, can have uh, access to all the different options and not to try to ensure that some things are not 
available particularly to the most vulnerable and poorest and marginalized uh, uh, groups of people in, in, in the country. United Nations Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Dr. Michelle Bachelet, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, it's been wonderful to have you. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll be in Davos for the World Economic Forum. I don't know yet what we'll be talking about, but I know it will be different from Panama and Stoke-on-Trent. If you want more economic news and analysis before then, check out the Bloomberg News website and follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, even though he had COVID, and Summer Sadi, with special thanks to Dr. Michel Bachelet and the Right Honourable Rishi Sunak, MP. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.